A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Now, I'm greatly honoured this week to have David Vivas, uh, lecturer in early modern history at Bangor University, uh, and also author of The Great Defiance, which is kind of one, one of a number of um, books that kind of re-examine and re-explore the legacy of the, uh, the British Empire. Um, you you know, if, if you're here in the UK listening... Um, this has been, uh, in, in terms of kind of popular historiography, uh, a kind of a, a contentious and key issue for at least a decade, I would say. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, plans to tear down statues of uh, Cecil Rhodes and, all, and this kind of moment we're in means that not only are there a sheaf of new, very reactionary titles about weren't if helmets and bayonets a fabulous thing, but also a, a, a range of, of, of uh, new books, um, uh, Empire Land and things like that, look, looking at um, the legacy of empire in a, a far, far more critical way. Now, um, the, the the great defiance which I'm, I'm reading at the moment is uh, is an excellent uh, kind of re-examination of looking at the the resistance to the British Empire, and wherever you are in the debate, whether you see uh, the empire as being a kind of a, this sort of benign progressive force, whether you see it as being um, oppressive, or whether you take uh, exist somewhere in the middle. 
if we leave out the stories of the people who fought and resisted empire, then we we're not really looking at a at a whole picture. But anyway, I'm I'm telling David's uh, <laughs> um, uh, a thesis here. But um, I'd like to anyway welcome David, and uh, you can tell us. The, the the kind of the core arguments of the great defiance yeah well i mean you you get carrot you've explained it a lot better than i have over the past uh, year or so um well, well listen thanks for inviting me it's, it's a real pleasure um to to come and talk about it yeah so it's um i mean the great defiance i mean maybe it's um subtitle helps a little bit just the, how the world took on the british empire and so all it does i think in its simplicity and when i pitched the book it, it was a really simple pitch it's just that we have lots of histories of the british empire as this kind of centrifugal force you know emanating out from europe and conquering these regions often quite spectacularly it, and, you know, but, you know, beginning in the sort of late 16th century, by the end of the 18th century, having gobbled up most, you know, the subcontinent of India and inroads into the coasts of Africa, most of uh, coastal North America, the Caribbean island. You know, it's this kind of spectacular uh, um, uh, expansion. And it sounds like a story of, you know, some some books of reason, a relentless rise, you know, shifting the geopolitical landscape of the world by the end of the early modern period. And if you believe uh, some historians, then ushering a new modernity of which we are still feeling the effects of today. You know, the, the contemporary landscape is very much a product of the British Empire in the 19th and 20th century. Now, that's uh, that's a fantastic narrative. Um, but for, for me, uh, my research over the past almost 15 years now, um, in which I tend to study the the non-European societies and and political entities that encountered the British during this period is that uh, these were very kind of complex and powerful societies and and economies and uh, and militaries and um and I saw a expansion that was far more checkered far more uneven uh, advancing in some parts of the world retreating in others abandoning other parts compromising for <laughs> centuries into and so i thought hold on this is this is less a kind of uh, kind of quick uh, inevitable rise of british expansion it's one that was often frustrated and had to accommodate the people it encountered in what i found quite surprising ways and so suddenly it became a far i think more uh, a richer story for having two sides and i think that if you cast the people that the british eventually conquer and this is just sort of the objects of british conquest and then you strip them you make them passive and you strip them of uh, and you make them reactive to British advances. And so I thought, well, what does a history uh, look, uh, what, what will a history look like that can accommodate their perspective? And, and suddenly you see, you know, that some of these colonial conquests took generations to achieve, and in some cases over a century. <laughs> and so I think that that made the kind of penendulum of power swing back from the British to a lot of these societies that they attempted to conquer and some that they never could. And, and so for me, that was, as you, as you, put it quite eloquently earlier, a history of the British Empire, in which it's not just the British that the agents have changed. Um, yeah. It's a variety of non-European and indigenous people. So I brought them into the story and, and hopefully I've, I've just given another aspect of that history that we haven't had too much of so far. So are there moments, I mean, if you look at uh, perhaps Ireland um, uh, or India as, as, as two examples, when you look at uh, first English uh, colonialism and then British colonialism in Ireland and then British colonialism in India, the things that you you get 
the the kind of the picture that you get of of, of Ireland or India is the result of this kind of almost ne negotiated um, sort of encounter between colonizer and colonized. Um, you know, if, if if it were, you know, some um, so some other kind of imperial imperial story, one that was sort of kind of outright. Uh, outrightly genocidal from the beginning, of which there 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 have been it, um, then then it, it it's not quite like that. But I, I get the sense that where the expansion of empire meets resistance, something kind of happens there, um, and that shapes the outcome. Is that is that kind of I'm speaking in broad generalizations, but is that sort of sort of what we what we mean here? Yeah, no, I think that's generally the framework that I, I, I certainly find. And, you know, I'm not the only one, you know, let me say that there are, you know, tons of scholars before me and at the moment looking at these kind of complicated, I mean, often in the in the Atlantic context, we call it the middle ground, you know, where Europeans meet indigenous um, entities and, and cultures and have to sort of find their way and adapt and often accommodate them um, uh, in, you know, in the Indian Ocean context, you know, we, we may think of it more as a negotiation between the world superpowers. You mentioned India, so the Mughal Empire, not just the Mughal Empire, there's a whole host of, uh, um, you know, empires and sultanates that, that um, Britain has to um, uh, sort of adapt to rather than steamroll over because it can't uh, the uh, uh, even in Ireland so uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to start the book with Ireland because we often don't start histories of the British Empire with Ireland we Ireland is under Henry VIII uh, created into a, a kingdom um, mm. of which uh, uh, the English monarchs rule and therefore it's often just subsumed into domestic English history uh, and and you know any any wars that take place there are uprisings against the monarchy to be crushed but you know no that's that you know that's a that's a, a, a an anglo-centric perspective it, Ireland is the first colony of the British Empire and it remains so all the way through um, you know even up into beyond the Cromwellian reconquest of Ireland it's treated differently from Scotland for example and so um, and even even there, we assume that, you know, that, is, that was a conquest centuries in, in, in the making and going all the way back to Anglo-Norman times uh, in the 12th century. And by the time we get to the Elizabethan conquest that we're more familiar with at the, uh, at the turn of the 17th century, it's really a product of the failure to steamroll over Ireland. Actually, a lot of the early colonists, when they get there, are... Are seduced by Gaelic Irish culture, um, mm. and their power bases are Anglo Irish, mm. not English. Um, and they're, you know, and, and so there's an ability where the English crown, by the time of the Tudor period with Henry the Seventh, has to essentially rule through uh, old English and Irish lords, and has to recruit them as allies, and has to reward them with patronage, and and they become so powerful, in fact, that they're ca quite capable of intervening in English politics and mm. the various rebellions against, for example, Henry the Seventh have Irish support, um, um, and and so um, yes, before the kind of mass colonization of English and Scottish Protestants, mm. it is very much a you know backed up by military force and including atrocity. Still, there is an aspect of the English having to accommodate local Irish interests as much as possible. And, you know, for much of this period, it's only part of Ireland where the English writ runs. And for large parts of it, they're running it in, through networks of, uh, of Irish lords and their clients. So, yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. And if you if you fast forward into the Stuart era, 
if you were to you know around 1640 to if you if you were Charles the first and wishing the English had never become involved in Ireland um you know if, if you think of a kind of a counterfactual where Ireland isn't in Ireland sort of was never colonized in a 1640 scenario quite possibly Charles the first would, would would never have experienced a civil war there's this kind of crisis crisis moment and that that suggests that with colonization of Ireland actually becomes a, almost like a kind of like a net liability to um to the English crown eventually yeah but I don't even think we have to um and actually that's that is a hypothetical I put to my students um um and, and one of one of the assessments I have I, I run a module on on, on the uh, three kingdoms the war of the three kingdoms and it's that without the Irish and Scottish uprisings there would not have been an English rebellion in 1642. Uh, so I think there are important dimensions uh, and context for that. But but actually, even by the time the final independent Irish lords have been crushed at the end of the Nine Years' War, um, that ends in 1603, the English feel that the conquest of Ireland has become like a millstone around, around their necks. You know, the Irish conquest of Ireland it, under the Tudors uh, and at the beginning of the uh, Stuart period, cost more in men and money than either the war with the superpower of Spain or the intervention in the Netherlands, which much of our attention is showing. It cost two million pounds. Mm. Um, it cost perhaps up to a hundred thousand casualties. It's a it's a gigantic conquest, and by the end of it, rather than converting the Irish to Protestantism to rather than them having accepted English law and custom rather than speaking English in fact what they're left with is this massive military occupation of yeah. Ireland one that faces constant rebellion after 1603 um and it's it's not what and and this is what my book tries to do is that what we end up with at the end of the early modern period and you look at these maps of the British Empire and they look impressive this imperial pink here and here actually it's often a it's, it's a map I think of, of compromise and it's not often what the British had hoped to achieve it's really the result of uh, English and later British ambition and agenda meeting indigenous or non-European power and the result is this compromise so you've got a 500 plus conquest of Ireland that that yeah ends in really in some sense failure because no one in England wants a multi-million pound military occupation yeah. uh, one that has really by the time Elizabeth dies brought the English state to the point of collapse certainly by bankruptcy and that's only avoided by extreme measures mm. and the fact that when James takes the throne he, he becomes quite lenient um and wants to settle the bit. So, so yeah. So, I think that even in conquest, that there is a degree of, of of failure through that compromise. There, I mean, there are, are countless different kind of debates about the nature of the British Empire. As a, you know, and you essentially almost from kind of high school level onwards, there is this discussion of is it, was it the empire of trade, was it the empire of conquest, and you know, it, and it depends when you ask. But obviously, when you talk about Ireland, the whole point of having an empire, no matter who you are, is to not make the dominant country poorer. Um, you know, that's really kind of pay, uh, kind of rookie error. Um, and so did the British, do you think, was there some kind of, um, was it some kind of learning moment? Did, did the British Empire seek in subsequent decades and centuries to try to do things um as profitably as possible 
I think I, I think that I think it's working on two levels here. And I think that um, if we kind of break it down, if we break colonialism or imperialism down to two different levels, you've got the sort of the role of the state or the crown uh, in the earlier period and its aims and ambitions and the impact that colonization has on them. And then you've got a, a second level of it's the individual colonists and officials involved in these uh, schemes of, of conquest and colonialism. And so I think that, that we can't see it sort of as, as an English or, or British thing overall. Um, and even within that, you've got things like companies and corporations that are involved. And some historians see the kind of British Empire more as like this matrix or this kind of quilt, this patchwork of different... Mm colonial entities operating but I, I think that you know places like Ireland the the English state is certainly worse off for its conquest um and the great beneficiaries of of the defeat of of, of the Irish lords are, are the private colonists and colonial officials and corporations and and so while the English state is you know on the verge of bankruptcy um there are people like Sir Walter Raleigh who, you know, has 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 been uh, able to carve out sort of millions of acres of, of Irish plantations that he benefits from. He uses that the wealth that he extracts from Ireland to fund further colonization schemes in North America. So, so the settlement of what we would call, you know, Carolinas or, or Roanoke back then um, and funds expeditions to discover um um you know various sources of of gold in in south america and none of that pans out of course and 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 there are many people that that benefit privately like the city of london from the plantations it establishes in places like london dairy in -hmm. northern ireland that are able to then use that to invest in the east india company and early east india company investment draws from these various sort of plantations the, even the east india company sets up you know foundries in uh in ireland and you know um, purchase irish livestock that's confiscated from the gaelic irish catholic irish and uh, is now run by protestant settlers so i think on the private or or, or, or or in terms of individual colonists there is a lot of a benefit and they're the main beneficiaries and it helps to then propel the english colonization elsewhere the english or british state rarely is the beneficiary of of these conquests and often is is the loser in some respects and you can argue obviously the true losers are those who are dispossessed and um uh who are uh defeated but in terms of who benefits yeah it's rarely the state itself and more the individuals involved but that perhaps reflects uh, you know how the state worked in the early modern period say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The next thing I think I, to, to focus on is this idea of, of resistance. Obviously, you know, the, the, um, the kind of the, the way in which we have 
traditionally understood the British Empire, um, you know, the, the the kind of the histories of the British Empire were being were being written in the, the heyday of the British Empire. There were people writing, saying, asking questions like, "How did things work out so well? And what is it that's so special about uh, the, the people on this little island?" And I guess it. Is it fair to say that you can only really write things, you know, histories like the Great Defiance, where we are historically now, you know, in, in a, um, a post-imperial age? Or were people asking these kinds of questions, were, were Victorians asking these kinds of questions? Yeah, I think um, that's a really good question. I think that's a, that's a difficult one. I, I I mean, when you when I did the research this I was struck by the fact that lots of contemporaries did realise that what they were doing to the indigenous people of the Caribbean, uh, for example, um, or or the indigenous Americans, um, places like Virginia and elsewhere, were horrific and were wrong. You know, you know, people say, you know, you can't write a history, you know, adopting kind of our present. Uh, values well things like war and uh uh you know uh, um and uh, uh pillaging and um you know conquest and the displacement of entitlement has always been viewed as wrong and um, it's just when you're benefiting from at the time you attempt to just justify it and that's what a lot of european countries did engaging in the trading and slave people and um uh, the dispossession of indigenous people uh they, they attempt to justify it. and you build an entire sort of imperial ideology uh eventually in britain's example you know the white man's burden um and so uh but there are dissenting voices that you find um in quite surprising and unexpected ways and and but what you don't get because it doesn't fit the mainstream kind of ideology or narrative at that point. You don't get kind of complete histories, rarely get complete histories that can provide you with a kind of comprehensive understanding of the empire that are critical in that period. So where yeah. you can find individual dissenting voices and criticisms of colonialism, uh, contemporary, you know, at the time it's happening, rarely uh, the histories that are being sponsored, approved and written are, are yeah so i think to get a more comprehensive narrative or, or analysis of the expansion of the british empire you, you do do have to wait uh, you know this is what you know post-colonial scholarship has done this is what decolonizing scholarship is doing it's removing us as far as possible from um from that framework that cultural um uh literary framework that has ensure that most of the histories we write about the British Empire are sympathetic because they are Eurocentric or Anglocentric. And I think that in this glo global age, uh, especially of academia, you know, it's a real global discipline. Um, we can you know, draw on the perspectives and the findings of, of colleagues in the global South, colleagues of colour, um, mm. and that will essentially help to decenter our, our perspective. You know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, as a white man from Britain writing this, I can only shift that view so far i have to rely on the the fantastic scholarship being done elsewhere and a lot of these places are former colonies of the british empire um and so i i think yes yes we need to be as removed as we are now but even then there's only a certain amount of we could do in in the global white north really yeah. and so um and, and there's also a fine line you know between using uh, or promoting uh, and, and integrating the research done by colleagues outside of europe and also not exploiting their, their labor to use in our 
British histories of the rest of the world. And so that's that that was a challenge of the book. And whether I've done that successfully or not, I don't know. But I don't think that should necessarily stop us trying as much as possible to decolonize our histories of empire, which sounds like a complete contradiction. But unless we're gonna push as much as this idea of objectivity, I think we have to do that. Otherwise, it will always be a British history. And at the moment, I mean, uh, you know, listeners to this podcast will know that I've, we've, I've talked with a, a number of scholars in, in the last uh, couple of months uh, on similar topics to this. At the moment, obviously, we're, we're in this kind of vociferous kind of cultural battle for the, the ownership of, uh, I mean, it sounds, it's a very crude way of putting it, but essentially for the ownership of, of this, this narrative around the British Empire and slavery and, and, and colonialism. Why do you think we are in this this moment now um, in, in terms of this, the intensity of this, this debate? I think, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's such a, um, yeah, it's one of those questions that, uh, that I certainly have, you know, been consumed by in the past few years. And I've spoken to lots of people and I've written things and distilled my ideas. But even every time it's asked anew, I still think, oh, God, that's such a, I'm so I feel like I'm so involved in it. Um, it's kind of hard at some point to put, you, put yourself out and gain perspective. So what I find really interesting, I I have said this before, I think in some ways it's slightly coincidental because what you find in the production. So, you know, we've been um, the uh, scholarship on the British Empire and imperialism with the advent of global history in the past 20 years has been going in this direction anyway, including and accommodating the perspectives of the colonised as well as the coloniser. That's naturally been hacking, happening in academic scholarship, certainly in the global north, you know, places like Europe and North America for the past 20 years. Happening elsewhere in places like India, you know, since post-colonial scholarship in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and thankfully, you know, it's been Indian historians that have taken the lead in understanding the British empire in places like India. Now, what always happens is there's a there's a lag between what academics are doing in their little silos and campuses uh, uh, for that to filter out into more popular, accessible histories. And I think one of the interesting things that's happening at the moment is more academics are moving into publishing uh, popular histories, narrative histories for mm -hmm. not just university presses where maybe 100 students and academics will read a book, um, but, you know, where thousands will then go to Waterstones and be able to access Sure. academic research that's what i try to do and so there's a kind of natural lag so what you find with new histories of the british empire or revisionist as you might call them uh, which i hope my own is um uh, which other historians you know charlotte riley's fantastic book at, at sky at the satnam sangira's done a great book uh, uh empire land that's kind of trying to acknowledge that you know that we are still living in this kind of age of empire in which you know much of our understanding is shaped by the superiority of Europe and uh, and the legacy of the British Empire and histories of empire as well, which try and mm -hmm. acknowledge that and try and rewrite it, uh, is that they're just happening at a time when, you know, things like you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement, the toppling of Edward Colston statue. And, and so a lot of the books that have come out, my book, Charlotte's book, uh, were already, you know, underway. They were already yeah. being written and being researched. You know, this book and... Yeah, sure. These take five to ten years to research and write, and so in, in and as I was finishing my book and all this was unfolding, the shit, the conversation was sh about empire was shifting. I had to kind of accommodate that and address that 
in my introduction and elsewhere. And so, and and so, in a way, it looks like a kind of concerted effort. Like academics are jumping on the contemporary shifts uh, and changes and capitalizing from that. And you know, whether there is, I, I don't know. Um, but I can say that a lot of the 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 books that are, have come out in the past two years, um, the that that a certain position in this conversation of condemning and suggesting of awoke and you know mm-hmm. you know blah 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 uh I, I just i just are just the product of academic scholarship gradually filtering out into more accessible forms so in a way i think it's incidental and then so you get this kind of contemporary shift and this conversation around statues and our imperial past you know and the formation of reactionary groups that are combating that like history reclaimed and uh and, and that sort of thing um and then uh, that happening at a time and so it looks like it's a, a, a you know public com- uh, contentious issue that's brewing and country when actually i think and certainly from revisionists like myself this is just part of the research that we've been doing and have been doing it for 10 yeah. 20 years um and then the second part of that answer if i could just take another minute or so is that the history has become so contentious because it's one of those disciplines that um, has real, and all disciplines have real societal impact, but it, it it speaks to our sense of identity, our heritage, our culture. And so any attempt to, to shift our understanding or hopefully to revise our understanding about our past and therefore our identity and our culture uh, around race and even religion and uh, and international relations is naturally going to spark a backlash and be yeah. a contentious divisive issue and i think that academics have just been caught on the front line of that mostly because we are now kind of entering that public space and producing these books for a wider audience and so i think as i said i think we've just been caught up in that um but 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 it but it is if, if you write a book saying oh actually maybe we were the baddies according to the people that we conquered which is a natural assumption you know, victims of conquest will cast you as, as as the baddies that then speaks to people that are not even historically literate that, that are not even you know that perhaps didn't even go to university and have have had no kind of um, participation in the academic debates around this will naturally feel like that they should participate because it questions their identity and their understanding yeah. of who they are religion and so uh, if you look back and think, well, obviously this is going to be an explosive issue, um, and you know, in a way, that great—that's what history should do. It should challenge and have some kind of impact. And I'm glad I work and write and and research in an area that is sparking this this massive conversation. That it is spilling over into a kind of, I think, a rather nasty conversation, in which there are groups who are being victimised and, and attacked because of it. Yeah. Now it's folded into this whole conversation around wokeness and 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 race. I think that's that's the that's the great pity. But I think the the fact that people are talking about the British Empire, I can never be disappointed about that, even if yeah. not everyone shares my perspective. We're, 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 the, the the zoom clock is running down um so um i think a, a, a kind of like a fi- a final thought is is sort of encapsulated in, in what you said there in that the the thing i always try to do on this podcast is to recomplicate history um which might sound like a, a kind of a bad thing to do but it's it's i think it's really really important and i think the great defiance is about is like this kind of recomplication 
of this story you get told in school. Um, actually, in fairness to a lot of school colleagues that I have, the, the teaching on the British Empire has leapt ahead in recent years and then wonders have happened. But I still think that when that that by not being able to hear about resistance and by seeing this kind of you know version of history as the, the colonizers, the savages, and the victims, to be to be crudely, um we we, we miss a, we miss one heck of a trick. And so I think that the, the the value of the Great Defiance, and I think this is this is why I would urge my listeners to uh, purchase it. As I always say, from an independent retailer, Amazon has more and far too much money already. Um, is is to is to it engage in that that recomplication. So that's my that's my plug for the book. Um, Thank you, I appreciate it. David, we must finish in a moment, but I was wondering, might there be an opportunity to continue this, this conversation at some point in the future? Uh, there's a, a, a heck of a lot more to be said about the early modern, uh, the early modern kind of expansion of the British Empire. Would, would, would you... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. I'd love to be able to talk maybe a little bit more about some of those un, uh, less known people and communities that, you know, came under attack and, and sustained a quite a successful intergenerational centuries-long resistance that will be great to uh yeah to bring those to your audience about. Wow. Fab. well it's been too too brief already but i will drop your line and we'll we'll arrange a thing super thank you nick okay. that's brilliant love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by march 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly because no matter what moves you made last year TurboTax makes them count that means getting 100 back and 100 accurate taxes only from intuit TurboTax. must file by 331 credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service offer can be modified or terminated at any time 